I'm your host, Will Krebs, and this is the Under Pressure Outdoors Podcast. From the middle of the 19th century, missionaries, explorers, and adventurers reported on their wanderings through Africa and a greater awareness of the richness of the African continent came to the fore. The tourist safaris were hunting expeditions where hunters paid large sums of money to spend up to three months in Africa, being portered and pampered by a huge contingent of locals. The safaris were chartered by men like Hemingway and Teddy Roosevelt and written about in books like The Green Hills of Africa and African Game Trails. The conservation ethic was born out of this period when far-sighted individuals saw the need to protect the wildlife from mass extermination. The conservation work done in Africa is arguably more important today than it has ever been, and to bring to light just exactly what conservation through hunting looks like in Africa, and dispel some rumors surrounding big game hunting on the world's second largest continent, we're joined by Robbie Kroger, a South African native and owner of Blood Origins and host of the Blood Origins podcast. So, Robbie, tell us a little bit about yourself, and excuse me, forgive me if I pronounced your last name incorrectly. Yeah, so Robbie Kroger, Kroger, correct. It's like the supermarket, and I'll tell you a funny story about that. I was a very, very poor PhD student when I came to this country, and earning nothing, and had to go to Australia to, and I had to take Christmas presents home. And so I decided to get a bunch of Kroger-branded stuff, like <laughs> bricks of coffee, said Kroger and, and you know whatever I could find it said Kroger on it and then I wrapped it in Kroger plastic bags as well <laughs> yeah and I was the hit of Christmas by the way and it cost me like $40 to give everyone Christmas presents oh I can imagine <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah so Robbie Kroger originally from South Africa came to Mississippi in 2003 did a PhD, worked as a professor at Mississippi State University in the Wildlife Fisheries Department for six years, was the chief scientist that got asked to be a part of the federal uh, council that got born out of the BP oil spill, did that for a year, and now as a day job, I work as an environmental consultant, and then as a hobby, as a side passion project, I decided to build this thing called Blood Origins. So tell us a little bit about Blood Origins. What is Blood Origins? You know, Blood Origins is very simple. Its whole mission in life is to convey the truth about hunting. And that's what we do. So when you think about, like, what does that mean? Number one, we're not creating content for the hunting community. you got to remember that, number one. We are building content for the non-hunters that essentially keep our lifestyle in place. They are the ones who vote us into the ability to hunt, essentially. There's 60% of the population, 70% of the population do not hunt. Yet they have an opinion about whether we should hunt or we shouldn't hunt. And so we built Blood Origins for them. And it's really a conveying of the truth about the three of you explaining why you hunt. Because the non-hunters, they frame a perception, a piece of perception around hunting based on Disney, based on anti-hunters, based on lies essentially and so how do we explain the truth about who we are so we explain the truth by conveying the heart of a hunter that's what our content looks like our episodes really get a deeper dive into that individual and then we also tell the truth about what hunting does for people and for wildlife and for communities all around the world not just in africa but in asia and pakistan and australia and new zealand spain and obviously here in america um and so that's essentially what we do. We just, we, we, we feel like we create out of the box content for what hunters are used to. And uh, again, it's not built for hunters. It's built for non-hunters, but hunters can get something from it. They can learn how to interact with people. They can learn how to create rhetoric. They can learn how to speak, engage, especially in the social media world that we live in. And that, that, I mean, that, that's something that uh, the outdoors content is missing because it is tar it targets the audience of the people that were going to watch it 
or not watch it, but continue to hunt all at the same time, uh, or listen to it. Or, you know, I think that kind of wraps back around to the, the model of R3, you know, the recruit, retain, reactivate. We do a, in my opinion, we do a terrible job of it to begin with. If you really look at the model and, and you stuck true to what it says, we're not a hunters ourselves. We don't like, if you really wanted to recruit new hunters, retain hunters that are there and reactivate those that left the sport. Well, that means we're going to see more people on our public lands. Who wants Mm -hmm. to go out and hunt and see another person every time they go out there? But that's the nature of our three. So it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating piece because again, and, and and the, and the nuance there is that we're losing hunters. And so because we're losing hunters, we're losing revenue being pushed back into conservation even though it may feel like there's more hunters, people are more educated. People have more resources. They're going after limited tags, limited public lands, as you mentioned, but we're actually losing numbers. And we're also losing revenue that gets pushed back into the wildlife conservation system and feeds the hunter. So it's a, it's a very complicated loop. Um, But I think it would be, I'd, I'd be, I need to say that Blood Origins isn't built. We didn't build Blood Origins to create new hunters. Okay. We created non, we created Blood Origins to just ensure that the perception, the PR issue around hunting can be rectified. Not that we're going to be able to solve it. We're not going to be able to probably touch as many people as we want, right? You have to get bigger and bigger and bigger to do that. And obviously we want to get bigger and bigger and bigger. But I, uh, I was on a podcast on, on Saturday and this analogy hit me. Have you, you've heard of that, uh, not a fable, but it's that little girl that's walking along the beach and all these millions of starfish have beached themselves. And this, this girl is reaching down and she's throwing the starfish back into the ocean. One by one, by one, by one. And this old man's watching her. And the old man goes up to her and goes, little girl, you're wasting your time. You're never going to get every single starfish back into the ocean. And she reaches down, she picks up the starfish and goes, I know that it made a difference to this one and threw it back in the ocean. And that's sort of what we take from a non-hunter's perspective. We're not going to convince all non-hunters to change their perception around hunting. We're changing perceptions daily about, because you never know. And this is what I think is the very important point. I don't know what you think about this when you build content. Are you building content for the people who actually look at it and engage it? Or are you building content for the people that never engage? Oh, absolutely. You build it for the people that watch it or the people that listen to it. Yeah. I don't, I build it for the people that I know are watching me and I know sort of when they, when they look at it, they don't engage, but they've watched it. They've seen it. A seed has been planted in the back of their brain. Oh, wow. Hunting protects 1.5 million square kilometers in Africa. Maybe my perception of what hunting is doing for habitat in Africa was wrong and they'll never interact with you, but you just did something. But you affected them. You affected them. It's a, it's, it's a, it's the, it's the equation of the third order. Don't worry about the second order, the person that's engaging on you. But after this conversation, it's the person you go and talk to. Right. That is the influence. It's the third order influence. That's the key. Absolutely. And I've said before that I think too often we do a, a a bad job of engaging people from if you looked at your if you had hunters on the right people mm-hmm. who were neither hunters nor anti-hunters in the center and then your anti-hunters yep. on the left we constantly yep. want to reach to the left and pull to the right when we should be trying to reach if you're going to reach all the way to one side you should try to pull to the middle and then pull from the middle mm-hmm. to the right you're skipping mm-hmm. a step if you can make mm-hmm. people who are anti-hunting understand what it is 
what hunting does and what it means to be a hunter and then get them in the crowd in the middle where they're, they're neither a hunter nor an anti hunter. And then you take the people in the middle and you teach them to hunt and show them a different level. And eventually those people you pull from the far side to the center, they start to, they become easier to pull to the far right side of it as the, as the hunter. Yeah. It's, it's a drastic swing to go from an anti hunter to a hunter. And it's, yeah, but it happens all the time. It does. It does all the time. And that's a great thing when it does happen. So let, let's, let's dive right on into the hunting in Africa. You, what, uh, tell us a little bit about your, your, uh, background and the hunting in Africa and, and South Africa and so on and so forth. Well, I'm going to blow your mind. I have <laughs> hardly any experience hunting in Africa. Um, and I think that's the reason why Blood Origins is the way it is. I came from a family that was steeped in hunting heritage. My grandfather arrived in Mozambique in the middle of the 50s, 54. If you knew, know anything about Africa, if you've read any of the Hemingways, the Capsticks, any of those old books, Harry Manners of the world, 50s, 60s, 70s is the heyday of Africa. It is the colloquial, beautiful safaris, abundant game, no limits, just amazing. And my grandfather was living that. He worked for the first safari land here, the first hunting company in Mozambique back in the 60s. My father was a camp boy as a teenager. Imagine me a camp boy in these African hunting camps. His job was to go out every morning and kill a fresh impala so that they could have fresh liver for breakfast. That was, and then obviously feed the camp stuff. Right. Um, but 74, the revolution hit Mozambique, pretty much raped the landscape of wildlife and everything else. Um, I was sort of raised in Johannesburg, South Africa, eight and a half million people. It's like being raised in Los Angeles or New York. And I just didn't get, I didn't grow up around hunting. It's it's almost like somebody growing up in New York or growing up in Los Angeles. You have your 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 circle of friends doesn't hunt. You don't talk about hunting. You don't even think about hunting. I was that non-hunter that had no opinion one way or another about hunting. And so, you know, I didn't really have experience in Africa hunting. I I hunted pigeons twice uh, with my father, my grandfather. And really the only first African animal I took was about three months ago, four months ago. I went back to South Africa in April and uh, shot my first impala and shot my first springbok. Um, so I don't have the experience in hunting Africa, but I don't need the experience to tell you what hunting is like in Africa. You have a much, and it's amazing. You have a much deeper connection to the land there than most people do though. That's for yeah, sure. Of course. The, the heritage and of course. Uh, growing up there. Yeah. So let, let's start off with, with the positive. What benefits does big game hunting bring to the local populations in Africa? Everything. It means everything. Okay, so let's just let's back it up and let's talk about you know why hunting is an an, an economic model in Africa. Number one even in the States for wildlife to live on a place for wildlife to belong for wildlife to proliferate, it has to have a value, right? Alligators to you guys have a value. That's why they are there. If alligators had no value to you, there would be no more alligators because there would be something better that would replace it. Whether it be peacock bass fishing or, you're going to take the water and do something with it. Something's going to trump the value of that animal. And so in Africa, for the local populations, when you look at wildlife, wildlife has one value to them, and that's food. And that's a very important value. But when you bring hunting into the context, especially in these rural communities, where it's very difficult for anyone to get to, and the only person who will travel there is a hunter, is an adventurer then the value of that animal multiplies. It multiplies from just being food to being a job, to being, uh, I can buy goats and cattle now. I can build a house. 
I can have medical opportunities. My kids can now go to a school that the hunting operation just built. So you've five times, six times, seven times the value of that animal from just a food perspective. Oh, and by the way, it's still food because you're going to get the meat at the end of the day. So a lot of people like will say to us, and this is where I don't, I, I'm starting to get not annoyed, but somebody would say, well, you guys are taking away the right of the local population to hunt. Well, that's a Western construct. These guys don't go hunting like you guys go hunting for fun. They go hunting for necessity. So if you didn't have to hunt for necessity and the food was provided to you and economic return was provided to you, where would you spend that time? You would spend that time doing something else that would make you more money. Absolutely. That's, that's, uh, there's a lot of people here in the U S that'll tell you why well, I, I hunt for food. Well, I hunt for food too, but I don't have to. I, I so can... that's the massive disconnect, right? Between right. when people say I hate hunting and they go and buy their ribeye from the grocery store. Okay. What's the difference? Yeah. <laughs> the difference is I know where yeah. my meat came from. <laughs> yeah. That that ribeye they bought was just commercially raised and slaughtered versus. Literally, they know the hunting is probably more humane than how that cow was raised. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Somewhere. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's tied to convenience, right? The idea of convenience has taken this, this element of of the cycle of life out of general society. It yeah, just they, shows up. They don't have to think about how that cow was killed. They just go to the grocery store and buy it. Yeah, 1,000%. Well, you, you literally, it's a form of uh, not having physical blood on your hands in that yeah, process. Yeah, it's a sanitization of, right. sanitization of death, essentially. Yeah, right. absolutely. Uh, I, I don't... I get a lot of value from the connection to the game going out there. And, you know, we hunt whitetail deer a lot here in the South and you're going out, you're planning food plots. You're, you're providing a form of nourishment. You're trying to hold deer, create better habitat, make sure they have all the protein they need, the vitamins and minerals and all the stuff that make all that easy access. Then you go and you change part of the landscape. So they have a safer place to bed and raise their young and so on and so forth. You put all that work in there. And, you know, I, I was talking to my wife about it just the other night. And I, I pay, you know, we live here in Florida. We do a lot of our whitetail hunting in, in Georgia. I'm paying uh, between paying for a lease and an out-of-state hunting license $1,300 a year for three deer. It's a lot cheaper so to go mid, to the grocery so store. Break it, well, here, so break that down. How much do you think you're paying per ounce of meat? If I really wanted to break it down, and then I have to add in uh, food plot seed, protein, cost of ammo, the cost of the rifle, the cost of the gas to get there, the lease. The, I mean, it is absolutely insane. There's no way I would go into any restaurant anywhere in the world and pay per ounce what I pay for deer meat in, in my freezer behind this wall behind it's me. It's definitely not for okay. money. <laughs> but it's, okay, so then let's take it one step further. You give that meat away, right? I do. I do. Not it, all of it. Not okay. all of it. Not yeah. all of it. But you give I, small I amounts away. There, but it's it's not uncommon to take people, and that's one of my favorite ways to to enlighten people on the hunting side of things. To say, hey, uh, that's I want you to come. Right yeah, I want you to come try this meat. Try it through the stomach, and then you you cook some great meal. Uh, one of our co-hosts, Jim, who's not with us tonight, he actually made crow for us one night. Like the oh, you you make that <laughs> yeah. face. But let me tell you, really, it was absolutely delicious. And his what was it? Wow. Whiskey, whiskey reduction, so, uh, must, it, whiskey, whiskey cream. Redu- oh man! Had I'll he not it. told me it was crow, I I would have thought it was backstrap. A big dub. It's essentially yeah. just a big dub. Delicious. Man, 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 man. Well, let me. I'll take it one step further. How many times have you bought ribeye from the grocery store and given them away? Never, never. Yeah. I wouldn't even <laughs> think about it. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's 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 interesting. I see that somewhat. There's too. something there, right? Right. There's yeah. something there. It's something to this whole idea of providing. You're going on, you're hunting, and you're you you're, you're filling your freezer, and then this 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 thing that you want to provide, you want to give, you want to give to those less needy, and there's something tied to that action. You don't do it when you go to the grocery store, when there's no connection to what that thing is, like because you like, yeah, I don't I don't know what, what it is, but it's there's something there. It's almost like a, yeah. a primal instinct when uh, people would go out and bring it back to the village kind of do the 100%. same thing but in a more modern way you know mm-hmm. i'll say i don't think i've ever like you know gone to the grocery store and bought a big ribeye and i was like you know what i think i'm gonna give this to the neighbor <laughs> <laughs> you kind of thump your chest a little bit when you catch something or kill something and you're like, yeah. hey come try this the harvest is part of it for sure yeah absolutely yep. but even in even in the hunting aspect that's that uh, a lot of times is a is a community oriented thing as well. I mean, we always the the group here at Under Pressure Outdoors. We all hunt together. We duck hunt together. We do mm-hmm. stuff together, and we're always uh, cooking together, eating together. It's always it's the community built around it, and it's uh, it's it's interesting. But you know, I've never made friends at the grocery store and invited them over to uh, eat at the house. <laughs> but I've done that That's right. with strangers in the woods. You know, you, you make no friends doubt. built over that, that common bond. Uh, and it, and No, you're right. That That's very interesting. Think about it that way. So what is the, uh, what's, what's the biggest threat to the African game species right now? Mm, good question. There's two. Number one is habitat loss. So this is, again, some good things, some good seeds to plant in the back of your brain, right? So the number one threat to wildlife, not just in Africa, worldwide is habitat loss in africa number two threat is poaching whether it's poaching for meat or poaching for some sort of resource whether it's lion bones um elephant tusks rhino horn something that is of value a commodity okay so those are the two biggest threats. According to the IUCN, hunting doesn't even factor on the list of threats to any animal, any wildlife in wild in Africa. So now let's flip the coin again. What's the number one activity that protects the most habitat in Africa, in America? I haven't actually done the statistics in America, but generally, it's hunters. Okay, so then back to Africa. What's the activity that funds the most anti-poaching to protect wildlife in Africa? Hunting. So you can you can scream all you want, and you can call. And here's the this is this is the way the rubber meets the road. You can call hunting morally unethical. But do you agree that protecting habitat is a morally good thing to do? Absolutely. Yeah. Do you agree that funding anti-poaching to protect wildlife is a good thing to do? Absolutely. So why are you so against hunting? I think that uh, the media in and of itself, as well as movies and uh, stuff like that, have misconstrued the have blurred the lines between a hunter and a poacher for a lot absolutely 1000% correct and here's the difference in layman's terms calling hunting and poaching the same thing is like calling shopping and shoplifting the same thing yeah yeah, it's, it's true. I mean, everybody leaves something with something from the grocery store. Yeah, I would say because as as hunting, you know, when we go out and we buy our license, we do all that stuff we talked about earlier. We're we're putting back into that resource, but then when you go poach, you're you're just taking from it. Mm-hmm. You, you're not giving back to it at all. Yeah, and you're indiscriminate to the resource, right? You you you're only using a part of it. You're just cutting the head off and leaving everything else. You is you you're not fully integrating into the system like a hunter would. Yeah, and you one's talk, illegal, one's legal, that kind of stuff. You, know? you talked about the statistics in 
the U.S. and the Pittman Robertson, Dingle Johnson, and the Duck Stamp have single-handedly brought so many species back from near extermination in the early 1900s to where we are today. I mean, yep. without the Dingle Johnson Act, you wouldn't we wouldn't hunt whitetail deer yeah. like we do. We wouldn't have wood ducks. Well, wouldn't not have. Dingle Johnson, not Dingle Johnson. Dingle Johnson is fisheries. Pittman, Pittman Robertson. Robertson. Yeah, yeah, Pittman Robertson. Pittman Robertson. You're right. Absolutely right. Pittman, the PR Act, we call PR and DJ. PR is 14 billion at this stage. 14 billion has gone back into, I think the, the RMEF actually did quite a cool little statistic, and we're going to build an infographic about it. If you break down the numbers, it turns out to being $8 million a day. Jesus. That's crazy. I mean, That's a crazy it seems number. like a lot, though, but it's not. It's not enough anymore. $8 million a day is a lot, but you spread $8 million across 50 states, and the Pittman-Robertson Act, it's not spread evenly across 50 states. It's spread based on license sales and so on and so forth. So $8 million really, right. when you get down to it, is not a lot. And we're encountering an issue now, like we talked about earlier, where the hunter numbers are declining. Uh, therefore, mm-hmm. license sales are declining, and, and there is... Some of the state's conservation budget comes from license sales, not all of it. But with the decline in hunters comes the decline in people purchasing things that are under the Pittman and Robertson excise tax and so on and so forth. And we need to start looking at different ways to fund conservation here in the U.S. and globally for that matter. But that's that's a whole different different story. In fact, I just read an article today from the University of North Carolina about uh, the future of, of conservation funding and what college graduates thought the way it should be done. And it was it was interesting. Interesting to see the ideas and think some of them would be great, but some of them are a little far-fetched, to say the least. Yeah, so, the, so for instance, the state of Arkansas, I'll give you an idea. The state of Arkansas has a thing called the Amendment 75. Amendment 75 is one-eighth of one percent of taxes go to conservation in the state. It's not a lot, but it turns out to be like seventy-five million a year. That's not bad for one state. That's so, not bad at all. No, it's not bad at all. So it's it's a very very um, out of the box thinking approach to conservation. Absolutely, absolutely. I feel like that's something easy to propose too, because you know, if you tell somebody that an eighth of a one an eighth of 1% is going to go back to conservation. Somebody is more likely to vote on that than if you were to say, we're going to give $75 million. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> $75 million out of the state's budget to conserve public lands and, and stuff like that. And we, we have a, a huge problem here in Florida with habitat loss and we're growing rough by roughly 3000 people a day on average or three or, yeah, just just our area. You in Arizona, fastest growing yeah. in the nation, just in Central Florida, and that's having effect on our water quality and habitat loss. And it's there's a whole lot of a whole laundry list of things you could go into on on how that affects mm-hmm. us. But and it's it's a shame because it's we're dying. It's a beautiful state too. It's, yeah, yeah, we've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> We'll get there one way or another. So what can we as hunters do to help make a, a difference, even if we can't afford to put boots on the ground in Africa to pay for that hunt? So I think the best thing that we can do as hunters, because social media is the 21st century billboard, okay? We can we need to share good content, and we need to celebrate good content across social media. And here's what I mean. When you look at a PETA post or Humane Society post, 100,000 likes, 10,000 shares. A good hunting post, good hunting related post, maybe 2,000 likes, maybe 200 shares. Somehow, somewhere, we've just got to break this idea that, and unfortunately it's inherent in the hunting community, that is a lot of ego in the hunting community. And when someone just, when somebody puts it up there, people don't share it because they're like, eh, I'm just going to promote that person's ego. Versus find content that just is promoting hunting and promoting 
like what we truly stand for. And if we can really pick that content up and we can share the heck out of it, imagine all the non-hunters that get touched when you share the, the crap out of content. Yeah, because you think at least one person has probably, what if you're talking Facebook, each person probably has close to 2,000 friends. Yep. Yeah, there's been some headway too with some uh, more famous people getting into it. I know uh, Chris Pratt, I think, has made some posts. Um, yep. I know. I know you had some disagreements with Joe Rogan, but he's definitely made it very no, clear no, that, I have, that he I am, loves. I, I am. I am. I am not. I don't look. Let's get. Let's set the record straight. <laughs> I didn't mean to create a controversy. <laughs> no, no controversy at all. I didn't have, you know, it wasn't a disagreement. It was just like he had some things that he wanted to say about hunting. And I just wanted to set the record straight. That's and, awesome. Um, I, I hope people uh, through the uh, algorithms on social media and YouTube are able to find your uh, response as well and kind of get educated. Because I think that's where it starts. You know, they see someone that they like and they may not be interested. And I think that's been huge uh, across the board to kind of see that kind of in the more public space but you're right it's the celebrities that are really going to make a difference like joe rogan's the biggest champion for hunting we have right now chris pratt could be but he's also a little wary about cancel culture and so are most of the big celebrities justin timberlake huge hunter usher huge hunter i can keep naming them james hitfield lead singer of metallica huge hunter you don't ever see it come from any of them, those, those. Right, because they're scared and have to protect their brand. And Yeah, but imagine you could get a hundred of them all at the same time. Right. Drop it. Right. Drop something, right? Just maybe just a crazy, like, very subtle infographic. All on their social media at once. Right, absolutely. That'd be interesting. Yeah, that's kind of like when... You get enough employees at a company that are just tired of something. They're like, "What are they going to do? Fire us?" Because they can't do anything. <laughs> they can't do anything without us at this point. No, you talk about R three. Imagine a hundred celebrities came out and said, "Ah, oh, hunting's cool." Oh, oh absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, people with a with a voice like that to stand there and say, "This, this stuff is not bad. It's not what the media portrays it to be." I'll say because, like he said, Justin Timberlake. You you realize how many people that are probably complete anti-hunters just absolutely praise him you know how many teenage girls you'd see in the woods after that pink camouflage sales would spike (laughs) (laughs) so what are what are some of these misconceptions wrapped around uh big game hunting in africa um I, i think some of the misconceptions are the same as you would do have here in the united states that it's just a whack and stack them. Right? You, go, you guys go out whitetail hunting and you kill every time you go out, right? No. no. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> not. Yeah. If I'm lucky even to see one every time I go out. Yeah, so Africa is the same way. It's big, expansive hunting and it's hunting and you are after something and you're still stalking it and chasing it and and that's, you know, one of the perceptions of, of Africa is that, yes, and don't get me wrong, I'm not going to bullshit you, that there are places that whack and stack, you know, that you just go and you just pull the trigger as much as you want and off you go. But for the vast majority, that isn't Africa. And so that's changing the perceptions of who and it is. Um, if you're thinking about going hunting in Africa, go, because it's amazing. It's the type of hunting and the amount of species that you come across, right? It's not just like, Florida, if you're going whitetail hunting, you're going whitetail hunting. In Africa, depending on the property, there may be 20 different types of animals you can go after. You don't know what you're going to come across. And then, this is the biggest thing. And it doesn't really pertain, it pertains a little bit to the, the QDM principle. But think of hunting as a wildlife. Let me say this, as wildlife, as an economic endeavor. So no, no hunting outfit is going to let you whack and stack young animals unless they're bringing them in, okay, which is the wrong model we want, which is a very few and far between. So they're very selective in the animals you take because they want you to 
They want to grow their herd. They want to grow their population. They want to grow their economic assets. And as a result, they're going to make you pass up a bunch of animals before you take that right one. Just like you guys do deer hunting. You can give that one another year. We're going to give that one another two years. Okay, that one's the right one to take this year. So let's say I go to Africa and mm-hmm. I kill a giraffe. I obviously can't bring mm-hmm. all that meat home with me. Where does that go? No, you cannot. Every piece of meat is utilized in Africa. So there's going to be several different ways it's going to happen. Number one, you're going to eat it. You're going to eat it in camp. You're going to have a beautiful giraffe filet that night or the night after. And it'll be the best. It'll be better than any filet mignon you've ever had. I can guarantee you. Number two, the company itself will probably package up some of the venison meat and sell it because you can sell venison in South Africa. They will make dry biltong. Biltong is like jerky in South Africa. So you'll be eating jerky and then the rest will be donated to the community and the camp staff and their families. And as I said, everything is utilized. Like none of like the intestines, the stomach, liver, heart, everything is utilized. So that's where your meat goes. You can't bring it back. You can't, you know, it's just you can't even bring jerky back into the United States. So that's frustrating. I mean, I think even as far as you. Well, it's frustrating, but it's going to take you three days to get home or two days to get home. Right. You've also got to think about like your meat in that two day process, right? I I understand. It's, it's, it would not, it's, uh, not, would not be easy to get it here. Logistically, almost impossible. That's a that's a good point, though. I think that uh, should be brought up more when talking about. I think there's such a negative view of hunting in Africa because of social media. But if people realize that every piece of this animal is getting used, I think uh, a lot of people, when they talk about hunting that are against it, sometimes bring up that oh well, when this native group hunted, they used everything modern hunters don't like well they're still doing that (laughs) you know i think so let me ask you this why do you think why do you think there's that negative perception why do you think there's that exact perception about african hunting i think it's kind of like a one bad apple kind of thing there's probably 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 before there were some regulations i think culture drives a lot of it uh you know uh hollywood likes to make a good story not necessarily the truth and people kind of take that up as the truth too so and then you know you got outdoorsmen that are a little quiet about it and probably should be speaking up more, especially now. Well, let me ask this. Have you watched any hunting shows, outdoor media shows of people hunting in Africa? I have. I, uh, I've watched a few and it's usually just, uh, Oh, they put us on this. Here's the kill shot. And we go home. Where do those films always end? Where do they end? After the kill. Yeah, yeah. The, the trophy shot, the trophy picture, yep. and then that's it. It's done. Yeah, I think uh, it's probably a year or two ago they made a big stir about, uh, I think it was a dentist that went to Africa. and. Uh, oh, no. 2015. That was, was a long time ago. Holy cow. It's 2021 already, huh? <laughs> but you're right. To me, to me, what is being shown in hunting content, which is perfectly fine right? because it's being built for hunters is the action of hunting. Absolutely. And at the kill, that's where the action of hunting stops. So why would you show anything else? Instead, we should actually start filming at the end of the action and show the consequence of hunting, which would change perceptions like you just brought up that nothing gets utilized. Right. You know, I think like a lot of these, I, I've seen a lot of YouTube hunters too, that kind of do like they'll film their hunts and then they do like a kill and then cook. So they show like what they've harvested and then how they prepare it after. And I think that that definitely should be a lot bigger thing. 
on how you prepare 100%. it. I mean, obviously, you know, media would kind of, if you tried to show the cleaning of it or the gutting of it, that would, media would not basically care for that. But, but you know, I think, uh, and I've said in the past, I, I think Steve Rinella with Meat Eater did a really, does a really good job of showing the, the cooking side and not just yep. like, oh, I made venison burgers. Like he, he really goes above and beyond to make some awesome meals out of wild game to, to show that you don't have to buy this meat at the grocery store. You can make it out of something you can find in the wild. doesn't just have to be. Totally yeah. And that's, that's something interesting. And, you know, we, we try to host, um, our big thing we like to do, we're going to do some small game hunts this year. Cause that's the easiest way to get new hunters into the hunting realm because whether it's small game or bird hunting, you have a social aspect to that where you can all walk together. You can answer questions the entire time. Uh, you can still help someone take uh, in the process of taking their first animal. And then we go back and we're going to show you how to make a squirrel taste absolutely delicious. Because that's, 100%. that's another thing that turns people off right away who, who uh, have never hunted before. They, they're like, oh yeah, I, tr- I tried venison one time. It's really gamey and dry. Like, yeah, well, whoever cooked it for you didn't know what they were doing when they cooked it. That's why it was gamey and dry. They put it on the 100%. on the grill with a little bit of salt and pepper and, and cooked it well done. Of course it was gross. I wouldn't have liked it either, and I've been eating it my entire life. Exactly. Exactly. But I think there's a, a lack of knowing how to cook wild game, too, that really plays into that. For people who try it and, and have, have never tried it before, that's their first introduction to what it, the consequences of hunting. Mm-hmm. And it's just not good. And I don't really blame them for thinking, oh, wh- why would I want to do this? Why does th- that, that meat's not even good meat. I can just get it from the grocery store and it's better there. No, you're right. That's tough. And it's also it's just something we got to work on. And I, I think... Uh, yeah, we're changing. We're changing. Yeah, the way, the way hunting media is going now, it's, it's hit a turning point where it's kind of moving towards stuff like that. The, the outdoors media you see on the outdoor channel, that stuff is hunting on television in and of itself is, is dying. Most of your, your hunting content and outdoors content is all on YouTube. It's on the internet. Uh, that's the next wave of hunting content. And there's a lot of no, agree. content producers out there that are producing content beyond the kill shot, which is great. Yep. So how do we have the conversation of conservation versus preservation uh, when the definition seems to be commonly construed, in your opinion? What's the definition of conservation in your mind? Conservation is you're conserving a resource for a a later use versus preservation where you're you're keeping it to never be used. 100%. And I think that that's the difference. That's right there is that you've got to understand that conservation is the sustainable use or the wise use of, of a resource. And that is the difference between someone who is a consumptive user and someone that is a non-consumptive user. A consumptive user says, I'm going to utilize the resource because there's a value to that research going back to resource, going back to that whole idea that if it pays, it stays. And the preservationist says, I'm going to lock it away so that nobody can use it. But that's not maximizing what you could possibly do with that resource or possibly utilize that ecosystem for. But I think the problem we're seeing now is that the media commonly portrays conservation as preservation. So when when hunters talk about being conservationist and the work we put into to provide habitat and the money we put back to for habitat and the wildlife and all that stuff, people commonly confuse the word conservation with, you say conservation, they hear preservation. Hmm. I think yeah, so maybe we should use consumptive use. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think there's a big like misconception with people and preservation is where they think that like, hey, let's take like white tailed deer for instance. If we don't kill any of these white tailed deer, there's gonna be tons of them. And you're like, Yeah, but then when there's twice the amount that the habitat they have can handle then you run into a big problem. 
disease. Especially with us depleting habitat. Yeah, you, you have disease. They they starve. They get hit by cars. Yeah. Yeah. It, and that goes, I mean, with any game species whatsoever. A, a, a certain area can only inhabit a certain amount of animals. And then when you go and you don't harvest animals or you don't participate in conservation, then it, it becomes over full. You have a carrying capacity. Yeah. what you're looking for. And we run right back into that when you talk about habitat loss. Because yep. it's it's not only do we have habitat, but do we have quality habitat? Mm-hmm. Because quality habitat, yeah, and the other and the and the preserve. Sorry, go ahead. Quality habitat has a higher carrying capacity than just habitat in general. Yeah, and the and the, the preservationist viewpoint is let Mother Nature take care of itself. Mother Nature will sort it out. Mother Nature will ebb and flow, but. Every ecosystem on this planet has had some degree of a human fingerprint on it. And as a result, you have to manage it. You have to, as a steward, as a, as a, as a good steward of Mother Nature, you have to, you know, you've put a fingerprint on her, you've got to help manage her. Absolutely. So, in your opinion, why does society see some animals as more or less valuable than others? I mean, it, if I was to go out... You really and, want my answer to that? <laughs> <laughs> the example would be, if I, if I was to go out and shoot uh, a possum in my front yard, uh, nobody, there's not going to be near the outrage as with Cecil the lion. You want to play a hangman? I'll start with... I'll give you the first letter, D. <laughs> yeah. It ends with an E-Y. It ends with an EY. That's also, not only is that a, a, that's one of our biggest problems here in Florida, is Disney. I'll tell you the funniest thing I have heard about Disney. I'll give you a funny uh, story about Disney. My One of my favorite authors is from Florida, actually. His name's Carl Hyacin. He's a columnist with the Miami Herald, and he writes, he writes these fiction satires that are based on environmental issues in florida like the latest one he just came out with is called squeeze me about the burmese pythons and they got into the palm beach community and started killing old rich uh woman that was very funny but one of the stories he based on is a real is a true life story in that disney decided to get into weddings and so at you could one of the options on the wedding package is that you could release these white ducks and you could release them into the air, and it's beautiful for your wedding. And, uh, you know, Disney's pushed out a bunch of nature, and so all around them are, is really good red-tailed hawk habitat. And every day, I'm just, you know, like clockwork, up comes this beautiful bouquet of prey. And lo and behold, lo and slowly but surely, these red-tailed hawks realized that these doves and pigeons were being released during this wedding and one wedding just so happened to be the catalyst in that they released the doves and as the doves get released they just got hammered by these red tail hawks and there's feathers and white feathers just you know floating down onto the wedding party and disney quit releasing doves <laughs> and wedding ceremonies so um <laughs> yeah i say that in jest but it was a true story, but yes, Disneyfication of animals and beyond that, the anthropomorphizing of animals, like giving them names and giving them human qualities and giving them familial structures that are human-based certainly adds to the charismaticness of the big megafauna, the elephants, the lions, the leopards, the bears of the world. I was going to say, as soon as he started talking about this, the first thing that came to mind was Bambi. Bambi. Elma Fudd. Yeah. I was actually Shoot, I don't think he even uh, carries a gun anymore. I was thinking about a, there's an Instagram page I follow called Nature is Metal. And oh. uh, it's mostly animals uh, in Africa uh, being killed um, by other animals. And it kind of shows you the reality of what happens in these ecosystems. And not everyone gets along in these ecosystems. <laughs> And uh, I think that gets yeah, lost on some people. Lions doing what lions do. Yeah. Right? Nature. Mother there to make, more, make more lions and uh, 
kill some food. Mother Nature is is very cold hearted, and I think we we've come to view her as being kind, and that is not the no. Case. She's cruel that's and an, violent. I'll say that's yeah. another one of those Disney fied that things. Is another, you're right. It is another Disney fied <laughs> characteristic. Uh, I don't know. That's, I uh, I went through some survival training in about four days of no food. Uh, there wasn't a limit to anything. I wouldn't kill or eat. Being <laughs> hungry. A lot of people don't experience that, but uh, I was eating worms out of the ground. That's how hungry I was. So it's kind of lost on people now. We got some modern conveniences, which are a blessing, but they're also a curse. So it, we have a, a terrible issue with charismatic megafauna here in Florida. And for those that don't know, we have has been introduced um, as a petition, the FL5 Act. Um, mm, yes, I'm, you've heard about that. And mm-hmm. They, uh, it is, it's not good all around. Uh, there's a lot of gray area left in there to be and uh, talked about. But the biggest thing that sticks out to me, the way I heard about it, was uh, the Florida Iconic Species Act, which was wrapped into those five things, and they stand to they they want to protect a lot of species from being hunted in florida and the only one on that list of uh like manatees panthers panthers and stuff that we're just not going to hunt although i am mildly curious what a manatee tastes like um the bottlenose dolphins also on that list by the way right they're either they're already (laughs) most all of them were already federally protected except for the florida back black bear uh, and the Florida mm-hmm. black bear, they're, they est- they're estimated at a population of right now of about 4,050 in the state of Florida. And the first hunting season opened in 1936 and closed in 1971 for most of Florida, except for the Apalachicola National Forest, the Osceola National Forest, and Baker and Columbia counties, which remained open until 1994. And they harvested an average of 46 bears per season. Now, back in 2015, Florida did do another limited opportunity bear hunt uh, that was opened across four of the seven bear management units, um, and they killed 304 bears in, was it two days? Yeah, it was extremely poorly yeah. managed. Less than 48 hours, I believe. Yeah. It, it was uh, poorly managed, and I, I, it was almost, in my opinion, set up to look like a slaughter. Uh, mm-hmm. And if you look at it now, if you read the uh, the bear management plan now, it's set up more like our alligator hunt, uh, where you would pay money to get drawn for tags and then pay you enter a lottery. Yeah, you enter a lottery, pay to enter a lottery, and then you pay. I think they're talking about upwards of five hundred dollars for a bear tag for a state resident. It. Um, and then they only people issues. would still pay it though. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I just I'd pay it. Yeah, <laughs> for an opportunity at it. Yeah. Um, but. We technically, right now in the state of Florida, have a bear season. We just don't have a bag limit for said bear se- a quota yeah. for for said bear season. And, but we desperately need it. We we live mm-hmm. in an area of Florida where we are fifteen minutes from the Ocala National Forest, one of the largest national forests in the state of Florida, and bears are constantly getting hit by cars. On Interstate 19, it runs right through there, yeah. or Highway 19, State it's, Highway 19. Yeah, it's a State Highway that that runs right through the middle, two lane highway all the time. Bears get hit out there, and then we have bear issues in uh, our not so rural communities uh, around More suburban. Yeah, around like uh, Rock Springs Run and Wekiva State Forest, where you can't hunt um, bears there, or you can't hunt at all in Wekiva State Forest. Some of Rock Springs you can hunt, but not all of it. They don't have a fear of humans anymore. Mm. Uh, it's and, almost weekly on the news here of someone encountering a bear yeah. at their their house or in public in it's that gone, area. Yeah, it's gone to bars where they have, they have to spend extra money just to make like trash cans and crap yeah, to quote, keep bears from getting into them. Quote, unquote, bear-proof trash cans. Yeah, nothing bears going to get into whatever Nothing's bear-proof. You know what I, ha- I haven't heard of coming out of Florida, but I'm sure it occurs, is how many nuisance bears are taken out every year oh. by taxpayer so, money. Let, let me talk about this real quick. This this is something else. You talk about that. And we had uh, the Federal Division of Forestry on the podcast, and we talked to them extensively about some a little bit about bears. And we constantly use the word 
when it comes to nuisance animals like that, they are euthanized. And the biologist told us, she said, they don't euthanize bears in Florida. They kill them. Because you do not euthanize a healthy, a healthy animal. You kill it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And more more bears, I wish I could have found this. I tried to find a statistic on that today. I didn't have a lot of time to search all that up. But they kill a lot of bears in Florida. Because they get into oh, your garbage. I can imagine. And then they tear yep. apart your garage trying to get to your garbage can yeah. or whatever else. And then... They become and old Betty Sue is yelling, and he's calling up the local warden, saying, "Take care of this bear." Right. They come out and they trap it. They don't relocate it. They kill it. I'll say there. I think there's a big like misconception that people think like, "Oh, they go catch this bear and then they go release it somewhere." And now, oh, sorry to break your heart, but they they don't they don't release that bear. They kill it. The the thing is, is I think people want to believe they release it because that is the the happy ending. But if they actually went out and released the bear. It's just going to come right back to where they caught it. Mm-hmm. Bears travel very large areas. I think a male bear has something like 15 square miles that they'll travel, and a, a sow travels somewhere around five in their home yeah. range. Um, but if you relocate them, they will come back to their home range. And I mean, that costs the state way more money than it is to just kill it. Would, wouldn't you go back to where you could get an easy meal versus having to work for berries? You can have somebody's Thanks, leftover yeah. chickens and leftover chickens. Once you know about it, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So we're trying to get a bear hunt back in Florida, a better managed bear hunt. But we have this FL5 Act coming through under the guise of water quality, which it wouldn't bring about uh, if you actually read into it. And it, it, it buys into the – it plays into the Disneyfication mm-hmm. of all the stuff. And it, it's, it's tough. On to some more lighthearted stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> what is your most memorable hunt to date? Uh, Northern Territory, Australia. Iron sights, 416 Rigby. Walked three days up a river where probably no white man has ever stepped foot and found the biggest Asiatic water buffalo we could find and killed him. And then ate his backstrap. Under, under, on the side of a riverbank, river was full of freshwater crocodiles. We caught freshwater crocodiles. We swam in the river and we had that backstrap that night, which was the most amazing meal I've ever had. How Probably not a human within 300 miles of me. That is the most crocodile Dundee story yeah. I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah, they're like going to cut the backstrap back because I know this is a knife. <laughs> <laughs> So if you want to watch it, we actually created a film on it called Dreamtime. I'm going to have to look at it. So go that. watch it on YouTube. Dreamtime, and you will want to go to Australia and hunt a buffalo. I'll, I'll, oh link, that, I'll link that video down in the podcast description so our listeners can watch that too. Yeah, that's really so how, how do you get the rest of the meat out? I mean, because that's, that's a long so, ways to pack meat. So we didn't. To be completely honest, it's an invasive species. So we took the backstraps and we took the backstraps to eat that night and eat the next day. And literally, we didn't go back to verify this, but most carcasses 48 hours later are gone in the outback. The pigs come in and eat them. The wild dogs come in and eat them. They're gone. Yeah, you feed the rest of the habitat around it. The scary giant spiders. All the other invasive species. So, have you, Australia, have you ever eaten sandbar deer? I have not. I have not. Kangaroo tail? Proper. See, now I have to go to Australia. We, we've been putting in for the sandbar deer hunt on St. Vincent's Island in Florida. Have yet to get lucky enough to draw it. And then we have to get even more lucky enough to, uh, to actually kill one. <laughs> but uh, they, they I don't know it. many people that actually kill on that island, man. I know a lot of people that go on that island. I know very few that kill. We're going in January for the uh, muzzleloader whitetail hunt, so to get a feel for the island. Uh, mm. I've already made up my mind that I will continue to apply and apply and apply until I draw enough times to actually be successful. You, yep. you have a very very small chance. Uh, you have usually about 120 to 130 hunters on the island at a time, and then they usually only kill seven to nine sandbar deer. It's amazing. Yeah. So, but evidently, it's 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 a really interesting hunt in Florida. 
because it's yeah. there's no power, no water, running water, none of that. You're, you're truly as far into the woods as you can get, although you're really not that far. No. <laughs> but you're just secluded to that island. You have to come out by boat and stay there yeah. on the island the whole time. So it's they interesting. S- they say yeah, you yeah. better have some serious mosquito spray. That's what I've heard, and the snakes are really bad. Yeah. But we'll see. So uh, what's – tell us a funny hunting story. Funny hunting story. Mm, I don't know if you'd think this is funny or not. It, it was pretty memorable. Um, I went and uh, I drew an ad tag in New Mexico, public land ad tag. And we chased that thing for six days and finally got on a band of, of, of sheep, found a good ram, two and a half hours stalking, laid prone on the hill. The ram was in my scope picture, but he had to take like two or three steps, never took two or three steps, turned around, went around the finger. We stood up, started walking down the finger to try and get a good shot angle on him and a gunshot rang out. Oh, and I was like, "Shit, the guy gets shot! What the hell?" It was like that powerful. And another set of hunters shot the ram out from underneath us. That's yeah. <laughs> that sucks. So not a funny, not funny. Sucks. Definitely memorable though. Funny, yeah, yeah. Kind of not funny. Kind of funny. A, that's a that's the reality of public land hunting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but absolutely. these guys had to trespass. These guys had to trespass private land to get where they were at that time in the morning, given where we were. Darn. That's, so, oh, well. Yeah, that can be a bit frustrating. Yep. But, well, Robbie, at, at the end of every episode, we, we do a segment we like to call the Under Pressure Outdoors Tip of the Week. And uh, so you got a tip for us? Do I have a tip for you? Um, hmm, put me on the spot. Well, we can, <laughs> we can go around the table. I, so I'll, I'll start off and I'm just going to say, you start off. Well, we talked about PR a little bit earlier today and you talked about PETA and the humane society. And you think about the, the photos you see, um, mm. on there. It's always the worst photo of an animal you could possibly see. Well, they had to get that photo somewhere, right? So take the time when you harvest game to clean it up, make it look as natural as possible. There's nothing wrong with taking the photo and being proud of what you've killed and harvested and you're going to bring it back to camp, but do the best you can to make it look as lifelike as a dead animal can clean up the blood, tuck the tongue back in its mouth. Don't give them ammunition to use in the future. And that looks better. That looks, that looks better for people looking at it from the outside. Of course. Anyway. Think. I need you to think. I need you to think about what you just said, what you post, how you post it. Think, do you even need to post it? You need to just share it with your buddies. Send it to your buddies. Do it just streaming live with your buddies, whatever, man. If you are going to post a think before you post, think before you write anything and think what would someone is, oh, here's, here's the ending. Think, is this going to help or is this going to hurt hunting? Yeah, that's absolutely. Jordan, what do you got? Oh, crap. You stole mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I'd 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 be a say I'd almost want to say like don't be afraid of, of confrontation. Like don't argue with somebody. But like whereas we talked about preservation versus conservation, don't be afraid to, to you know, come back to somebody and say, Well, hey, you know, let's let's have a conversation about this. Let's not argue about it. But let's just kinda why don't why don't we discuss why do you have your views the the way they are and then why don't you hear me out about back about mine? Well, a to that point, Jordan, I would say try and find that mutual ground. Right, that person that's arguing against you, try and figure out like, okay, you hate hunting. Okay, I get it. But do you love wildlife? Yes, I do. Huh. 
Do you love the fact that wildlife will be around for your kids one day? Yes, I do. Oh, okay. Yeah. You go from there. Well, hey, you know, hunting puts this much back into helping preserve that wildlife. Yep, 100%. Stefano, what do you got? It's my turn. It's your turn. I'd say tell your story. You know, uh, every every, uh, sexy pick, every trophy pick has a story behind it. You know, you put love and work into that harvest, and uh, that harvest has an impact beyond just a picture and uh, a proud moment. You know, that that harvest put money back into conservation. It might have put money back in the community. You know, it's more than just a full belly and a nice picture. So make sure you're out there telling your story and – People are driven by emotion, especially when it comes to hunting. So let them feel some of those emotions that we go through um, as outdoorsmen and, uh, you know, show them the positive impact it's having, you know, and that, that involves telling that whole story, not just, not just, Hey, here's the deer I bagged this weekend, or here's the 12 fish I caught. You know, there's, there's a lot of work that goes into it. There's a lot of impact that that has on the community, on your family and, and uh, just on the outdoorsman community as well. And, and on the ecosystem. So make sure you're telling your story. Yeah. Well, Robbie, I thank you for joining yeah, us yeah. this week. Uh, thank you for joining us this week and how, tell our listeners how they can find you and, and blood origins and all that good stuff. Uh, bloodorigins.org, blood origins on any social media platform. Um, I would, uh, ask, join our supporters program cost of a cup of coffee a month at a minimum, three bucks a month, four bucks a month, five bucks a month. And you're in line for all sorts of giveaways. We do, by the way, have one of those water buffalo hunts in Australia to give away between now and Christmas. Looks like I'm fixing to be spending five bucks a month. (laughs) (laughs) And plus there's all sorts of other stuff, right? Lots of other hunts. I've got a bunch of Spanish hunts still in the bag. Um, Kuyu gift cards, you name it. We've got so much stuff that we give away every month. So Absolutely. I've been following you on Instagram for a while, and I was like, I told him you you sent that, uh, like uh, call out to Joe Rogan. I was like, dude, we got to get a hold of this guy. Like, I I love this guy's content. Appreciate you. Well, well, to make sure and link all that stuff in the podcast description. But you talk, we're not giving away a hunt, but we are having a uh, pig roast here on September 11th, and we are going to give away an obsession, a fully rigged, a fully rigged obsession bow. Uh, as well as uh, eco thirty quart cooler slam full of hunting goodies, um, and all the Sweet. all the uh, money raised from that is the, from the raffle is going to go back to Operation Outdoors Freedom, which takes wounded vets out on special opportunity hunts in Florida. So, hope you guys will join us out there for the pig roast. Uh, you can get on our Facebook page and find that event, and I'll get you there where you can buy tickets and all that good stuff, and be the same place as a crawfish boil, and it'll be just as good of a time. So, Robbie, I appreciate you joining us this week. And thank you, boys. Thank you. You have a good night. Yes, sir.